0: Me, your old ghoul friend, each is Christ, and well, you're listening to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast, and this week's show is a doozy. Uh, it's a celebration of things fabulous and grand. And this show is going to celebrate a movie that really, truly has it all. But before I can introduce the film, I need to introduce my fantastic co-host so that he can help me with one of his fabulous introductions. It's none other than the fabulous Michael Verratti.
1: Oh, shit. Are we on Cops again? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, peaches. Hi, how's it going? Going good. I am excited to put on my tiara and celebrate this week's film. This film has it all. It's got it's got glamour. It's got drag,
0: pretty much. Yeah. It's got um well, fantastic women. It's got murder. It's got explosions and action. It's got parades and it's got vomit. Buckets of vomit.
1: So, what more could you ask for? Really? What more could you ask for? Listeners, if you cringe at the sight of a seafood buffet or maybe live in fear of that swan gas then you probably know that we're celebrating 1999's Drop Dead Gorgeous starring a bevy of icons that include Kirsten Dunst, Denise Richards, Brittany Murphy, Amy Adams, Kirstie Alley, Ellen Barkin, Allison Janney, and the list goes on and on. Adam West is in there too. This movie is all about the pageant scene in small town America and the girls who have to survive it.
0: Yes. You know, we talk a lot, obviously, as we are wont to do uh, because that's the nature of the show about why we love this movie and why we're celebrating it. But I think first and foremost we should just say that it is so fucking funny and so yeah. well done, and the comedy is so rich and dense and just a oh, chef's kiss. For those of you who can't uh, see me right now because this is an audio format. Mwah, 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 mwah. That's my chef's kiss uh, reaction to this film. Um, yeah, it's just it's a it's a it's a wonderful film. It's a delicious movie. And you know, Michael, we should note that one of the reasons you are so attached to this film. I know you don't want to name drop because it's not your style. That's more my style. Um, but you're close. I mean, you're best friend. You you are almost your soul sisters. You're you're like um, attached at the Cunt to Denise Richards.
1: So let me clarify for listeners, because uh, Peaches is, is going over the top with this, because in <laughs> each of our interviews today, she she mentions this <laughs> deep friendship that I have with Denise Richards. And yes, it is true. I have worked with Denise Richards. We know each other. We've worked together on a number of occasions, and I love her dearly. I don't know that I would say we are best friends attached at anything. Uh, but due to due to yeah, I wonder uh, if we need to bleep that word. Was that is that too much? I don't know. I don't know. even think that's the worst thing that you've said this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I did just want to clarify for any listeners who who maybe are like, is this true? Uh, we, we We know each other. I love her. And for those of you who don't know, Denise Richards was the star of the first television Christmas movie I ever wrote, A Christmas Reunion. It still plays on TV every year. And I am so proud to, uh, you know, have her as part of my history. We just got to reunite where I interviewed her for the Wild Things Blu-ray that's coming soon from Arrow Video. So yeah, our paths cross here and there. I love her. I always love catching up with her. But just to temper the hyperbolic nature we're not attending, you know, slumber parties and talking about boys.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. But you're a lot closer to her than I am. And maybe I'm living vicariously through you because she's just wonderful. I mean, the same can be said for God, like how many movies are there where there's like a dozen incredible mind blowing comedic performers? And, and not just comedic, but like bona fide great actors, right? Like Kirsten Dunst may win an Oscar,
1: you know, right? in the very near future. Like this cast is just incredible. I would need to tell you this because I know that you appreciate a celebrity adjacent story. And one Valentine's Day, I went with a friend of mine to a jazz club and it was one of these like small venues where they fill every seat. So if you are at a table and your party doesn't Fill the table, they will put you with other folks. Ah, right, right, right. And uh, it was this little place called the Baked Potato in Studio City here in uh, Los Angeles. And it's a very famous jazz club. And I went with my friend Clint at the time we were both single. And we were just like, let's go out for Valentine's Day. Let's go to a jazz club and eat a baked potato because they serve them there. It's really ridiculous. We get seated at this table. And who is with us but Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst? And wow. it was like sort of one of those where I saw my friend recognize him first and then clock her and he had this sort of like very visible reaction that she noticed and you could (laughs) tell that like it was like one of these things where she was like oh shit like we're just trying to have a valentine's day date but then you know he would like calmed himself down and said something to me and then you saw her reaction where she's just like oh they're gay And so Ah. then she was, like, suddenly on board. And then, like, for the rest of the evening in this jazz show, she was just sort of, like, vibing and, like, smiling at us and, like, you know, slapping people on the shoulder. Like, wasn't this great? Like, we didn't really talk. But, like, for a moment, we bonded over because we were seated together. And I forgot about that until right now.
0: (laughs) I first saw, of course, like many of us, an interview with a vampire and was completely taken. And I will say this. uh, There are not many children in movies or TV shows where I'm like, who is that? You know, yeah. like, like, and, and she delivers one of those performances. And that's a movie I still really, really love. I saw it at the um, Uptown theater in Washington, DC. I remember seeing it super well. It was great. And I've sort of kept my eye on her ever since. And I think she's one of these people who has consistently had a really smart, interesting career now i haven't loved everything she's done of course but right. i really admire the choices she's made i mean if you and she's not in one cult movie she's you know th- th- this is the star of bring it on right like she's right. in she's one of those people where we could in and well like i mean she it, we talk about the holy triumvirate these these uh people usually women <laughs> like jessica harper or pj souls who are in more than you know or three or more uh you know truly cult movies and Kirsten Dunst qualifies, don't you think?
1: I absolutely do. I think that her work is just far reaching and uh, and she does a lot of different things. And what I really love about her uh, malleability as a performer is we know drama's hard, but we also know that sometimes comedy can be even harder and bringing it to Drop Dead Gorgeous. For all of the name talent in this movie and for all of the comedic chops in this movie, If she was not as good as she is, this movie would have fallen apart because it is her earnestness and genteel delivery that anchors this film and makes us want to go along for the ride. And I, I think that Kirsten Dunst as Amber Atkins is one of those performances for the Midnight Mass Ages.
0: If you live in our universe of movies that role often is much harder than, than the other roles that, that surround you. It may not look as challenging because the other roles look bigger. There may be more outrageous. You know, they might look riskier. But to, but to be the person who has to anchor the film with some heart and some earnestness it, it, surrounded by, uh, you know, insanity is, is really a challenge. And she does it consistently well where she still able to get in her own lovable comedic bits you know she's very very funny in the movie we talk about the cast throughout this episode i mean we talk about that how that that's really probably the the biggest reason we love this film. We talk about the script and the writer. We talk about the director. We talk about the themes of the film. And uh, we get into all of this with two incredible guests who, um, this is the first time where we've had um, a whole show with two guests who also do what we do. These are two people that love movies and make their work also celebrating movies such as ourselves.
1: And the first of those guests is an individual who I got to meet thanks to her podcast, The Horror Movie Survival Guide, which just celebrated 250 episodes, which she co-hosts with Julia Marquesi. And I have watched as she has been on TV and been a pop culture commentator. And I just really love her and her energy and just her as a person. She's one of the coolest people I've ever had the pleasure to meet. One thing that also led to her being on this episode is, well, she picked it. She has been a vocal supporter of Midnight Mass since it started. which you know is a fellow podcaster, she doesn't have to do. She's got her own show to worry about, her own show to support. And yet every week consistently, she was out there screaming from the rafters about how much she was loving our show. And I was like, well, it's a no-brainer that we need to ask Terry because not only is she an amazing voice, but she seems to love what we do and we love what she does. And so I reached out to her and I said, well, what's a cult film that you love? And like without thought, she was like, drop dead gorgeous. It was already a movie that Peaches and I both love, as Peaches references in the interviews. She, Peaches, has even hosted a Midnight Mass version of this movie. But Terry was the one that bumped it up on the list for us. And I'm so glad. And we're going to talk to Terry Gamble, podcaster and actress extraordinaire, right now. And welcome back, listeners. I am so excited about this next guest. She is an actor, writer, and drama coach who has appeared on such television programs as Dollface, Modern Family, ER, Superstore, and even recently showed off her baking acumen on an episode of Netflix's Nailed It. Additionally, she's appeared on commercials and numerous theatrical productions around the world. She's also the co-host of the wildly celebrated podcast Horror Movie Survival Guide, which just celebrated their 250th episode of Great Conversation and Good Tips to survive the night a true talent and renaissance woman please welcome the fabulous terry gamble hi terry
2: renaissance woman oh my goodness hello hi hi. (laughs) wow thank you oh my goodness so excited to be here i love you all so much your show is so fun and this is a dream you're
0: one of the first people we've had come
2: on who genuinely
0: listens to the show and engages with us about the show. And so, like, I'm really excited because I'm like, oh, my God, I'm getting to meet Terry, the fabulous Terry.
2: Oh, my God. You guys cover my favorite movies constantly, and I'm always surprised, and I get so excited to see what's, like, going to be on the docket each week. So this is just a dream. And I was talking with Clark Wolf last week, too, and she was like... I was, you know, talking about her episode and I was like, yes, I'm so excited. Maybe, maybe we'll talk more about it later. Like maybe I'm going to get to be on one soon. And she was like, so excited too. Oh, good. Yay.
1: Oh, I love that. Well, I mean, I think part of the fun for us even is that we're not relegated to one thing because cult can cross many, many boundaries and spectrums. It's all about how an audience embraces it. I think sometimes, and justly so, people associate cult with horror because so many cult films are horror films. For example, this week, there's horror, but it's a different kind of horror. It's that horror of being a teen girl in middle America and struggling with the social systems. As you know, because you've already listened to the intro and Peaches and I prattle on about it, we're talking about Drop Dead Gorgeous. Terry, you actually brought this movie to us. Peaches and I are both fans. Peaches has done a live Midnight Mass version of Drop Dead Gorgeous as well. But we want to talk to you about your fandom because when we were talking to you, we were like, what movie would interest you? This was at the top of your list.
2: Yes. We were like,
1: we got to do this episode with her. So where does it begin? When did you first discover this marvelous pageant of a film
2: oh my gosh I feel like it was from you know like DVD from blockbuster video you know (laughs) like I was like what is this thing I've loved Kirsten Dunst forever bring it on was one of my favorite movies part of it was shot in San Diego where I grew up so I was like oh my god San Diego anyway she just has that sunshiny vibe about her and she's really nice I met her like once in my random like Hollywood life and I was like she's very cool But this movie also stars Denise Richards, who was actually from my hometown, also a San Diego girl, too. So I was like, I got to see this movie with all these San Diego ladies playing Midwest women, which that accent's always been just delicious to me. And uh, pageants. I was obsessed with pageants as a child, me and my best friend. when we were five years old, we used to play pageant. We did. So much production value for a pageant. We had one of those backyards that had those hills that kind of like low down. We would make all the girls in the neighborhood learn choreography. We invited our parents, made them get tickets and like (laughs) would do full pageants that one of the dads, actually, I don't know, later on in life, I was like, he's kind of reminded me of the guy who likes to watch the young girls, but he would record all of them for us. (laughs) And like, yeah, (laughs) so we would get together and do them. So like pageantry and like watching the Miss America pageants on a loop and all that stuff. Was very much up my alley. I used to practice my talent. I played piano. So to see this stuff get skewered as I was an adult heading into my college age when this movie came out, I was like, okay, that's exactly how I feel about them. Now my life has changed. And seeing them from this perspective of just like a way out and that beauty it reminds me of Dolly Parton kind of when you know when Dolly Parton says she wanted to like be like the town horns, that was the beauty that was accessible. Right. These girls found the beauty that was accessible. And I think that's something about that. And it just latched into my heart. And uh, yeah, from then on, I, I've just been obsessed. I did not
0: expect you to say that you played pageant as a little girl. I love that so much. And and, and like uh, so many of us, uh, I didn't play pageant, but I, so, I certainly can see a world where if you and I were friends as children, um, I, I would have been right there with you. I mean, I, I, I just think that it's so fun and so great. And then later in life to have a movie like this come out, I mean, what hits me about it is... there's a couple things that I think make it extraordinary. One is just how dark it gets. Like when they describe it as a dark comedy, it's like, oh, wow, this is dark. I mean, it is. And it does not hold back on the comedy. It's not afraid of its comedy. It is confident. And this sort of button pushing outrageous, insane stuff it's putting forward. So I credit the writers really just for, for delivering such an incredible script that's so creative and we'll get to the mockumentary part of it in a moment but um the other thing is just the tour de force. That is the entire cast. So, of course, Kirsten Dunst, stubby, I mean, we all know now she's so brilliant and has been
2: consistently good since she was a child. I dare you to find a bad performance by her. Like every performance, she's not the weak link ever in the movie. Like maybe no. it's directing or maybe it's something else that happens depending on the film. She is never the weak link, though. She's always giving 100% and just a kind soul. And yes. that just comes through. And this role, it's such, I think, the closest to her as far as like energetically speaking, like how she kind of is as a person. She's very sweet, very optimistic, even in the midst of like this crazy business that is show, you know. Yeah, she yeah. seems to be like a light that keeps pushing forth. And then you get Amy Adams yeah. at like the beginning of her career. You're getting, debut, you know, right? debut, yeah. Brittany yeah. Murphy, like after Clueless. You're getting all these girls that are just, like, I just remember them all just, like, being an awe of every single one of them. And um, just all so good. And the adults.
0: Ugh. The adults in it. Alice yeah. and freaking
2: Janney giving it an oh. Alice and Janney. Yes. Like, giving you everything you want. And Ellen Barkin. Ellen yeah. Barkin's so good. When oh. Ellen Barkin
1: gets the beer can fused to her hand, <laughs> it, it's almost, like, so powerful a performance in its own way that when i see her in hard-hitting dramas later i'm like i don't know like i'm struggling now like well she was
2: such like a rom-com queen because like i always jokingly like people like what's your root you know we talk about your gay root or whatever and i'm just like ellen parkin and switch was like the Uh, thing that like set me off as a child so to see her do this role too i was like this everything of the casting in this was just like gay rights to me and her and Alice (laughs) and jenny especially like was so fantastic. And them just playing against each other, you could tell that they were having too much fun when they were like introducing each other, like to the mockumentary crew. And she's like, Oh, and Allison's just trying to flirt with everyone. And Ellen's just <laughs> trying to kick, kick her out. And she's like, Don't steal my scene, just them together. Ugh. Genius. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk about the film itself. I mean, it's filmed in this brilliant mockumentary style that I think up until the time was really associated with Christopher Guest, but Mm -hmm. this sort of switch over into this world of small town teen girl pageant it really is what makes the movie work, right? I think if this had been a standard high school film, it probably wouldn't have have jived as well. But I think it's through the confessionals and the behind the camera, behind the scenes looks, where we peel back the layers of all the kind of meanness that, we, that the movie really comes together. Do you have any particular thoughts on the style of the film or no?
2: Absolutely. I thought about that too, because Christopher Guest is also one of my all-time favorites. I've watched Waiting for Guffman probably more than any other movie on the planet, um, quite honestly. And I love, you know, So the depth you can get and the layers that you can build um, within the characters and getting that extra little bit. Because sometimes, you know, when you see a character on screen, sometimes in a regular um, drama or comedy, you always feel like, I want to know one more thing. I want to get that last little bit. You're able to get those little bits and kind of help weave the story. And you get all these wonderful things from Kirstie Alley and her confessional, It's her confessionals or her confessing the whole time, right? Of these murders, right? So it's like the ultimate use of the confessional style with that that I think works really, really well as a device for the film. And you're talking about against these other teen movies. Um, She's All That came out the same year. So it's like you're juxtaposing like which another movie I also like obsessively love, but also for very different reasons. You know, um, Freddie Prince anyway was anyway a god in that movie. But, um, you know, it, it drives to the heart of these women and their desires are just laid bare within the confessional. And I think it works really well.
0: Yeah, I think that it's one of those unique styles that we know Christopher Guest is the master of. In Christopher Guest's world, I I feel like the tone is incredible. Christopher Guest is brilliant. But I don't know that Christopher Guest ever goes as dark as this. To me, it was almost shocking when I saw it. And that's why I loved it. Because I was like, whoa, I didn't know it was going to be like this. But there's a lot of similarities, right? Like they both use incredible comedic performers. And I think what this format does, the mockumentary format, is it sort of gives them a little more to chew on. Because they get to be these characters who both present themselves in front of a camera knowingly. So we get to see what they as characters want the world to think of them, right? So, you know, there's a big difference between the characters when they're really aware that the cameras are on, they know they're talking to the cameras versus the cameras sort of sneaking around. And both film styles do this, where we get to see the characters, you know, where they forget the cameras are on, they they don't care anymore because they're so upset or they're so angered. And I love that. And this world, because it's a world of pageants and artifice, it's perfect because, you know, it is a pageant. The mockumentary style, it's emblematic of a pageant. What a brilliant way to write the script, you know.
2: And when they're forcing the narrative, too, because sometimes you can see, like, I love it when um, Denise Richards' character comes in to try to talk to the poor uh, girl in the anorexic unit, and she tries to act like she knows her. (laughs) She's like, who are you? Who are you? We play this game. Oh, yes. Uh, Oh, I about die every time she comes in for that. I'm like, girl, we know you are revealing yourself.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's a great example of comedy that at the time was still pushing the envelope. But I do wonder if someone would get away with, you know, making kind of fun of an eating disorder, you know, that way. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be honest. One of
1: the things that still cracks me up, which of course is problematic for exactly the reason you just said, is when we get to the actual pageant and she has her farewell performance and does Melissa Manchester's big number and the nurse is like jogging her in the wheelchair, everything about it is super dark and yet (laughs) like the little like field sprint that the nurse is doing just to make sure the choreography keeps up kills me every single time.
2: One of my best friends in high school actually did battle with the eating disorder. And this is still one of her favorite movies because of this character, honestly, because she got to laugh at herself too. Cause I, we always would joke about the calories on 400 calories. I was ready. We literally will text each other or call each other. Like I'm going out. I'm preparing my, my talent, finishing my costume, you know, and, and we'll, this is probably the movie I think I quote <laughs> every day. I don't know. And this is actually partly why I brought it up to you guys. I was hanging out with these guys from Provincetown Brewing. And all of a sudden, I just started saying, you know, like Tandu clothes, Tandu clothes, plie yeah. to them. And then the next moment I'm texting you and be like, hey, we got to do this, this movie. <laughs> um, I have
1: to ask because we have listed the amazing ensemble of this movie. And of course, the movie doesn't work without any of them. It would be fundamentally different. But everybody brings so much. Do you have a particular favorite performance or does it change per view?
2: Honestly, I think it changes every time because then I end up like following someone else and realizing how brilliant they are. And this last time too, it was really Mindy Sterling.
1: Wow. Um,
2: who really, I forgot of that she was in this. Like I was like, oh yes. But she's right there at the beginning, right behind. She's like the little like Renfield, you know, to Kirstie Alley's like Gladys Lehman character. And oh my gosh, she's terrifying. <laughs> and it, 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 as a little Lutheran, the judgment from these women. And I just remember that something growing up in a, in a small town I did. I grew up in like Northern San Diego County in like a place that had no mall, no movie theater. We had nothing in my town, it was just a lot of churches, like three Mormon churches, two Catholic churches, three Adventist churches and nothing else nearby. So feeling the judgment of these little old ladies, just like her. That one really hit me this time and just took me right back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really waver as well, because
0: whenever I do one of the drag parodies, I come away from the experience of writing the show sometimes not appreciating the movie as much as I did when I set out to celebrate it. And that's because I have to watch it over and over again. I have to break it down. I, I, I tear the plot apart. I decide what needs to stay, what needs to go, what's important to a cult movie audience. What are the, the, the moments that I have to celebrate on stage? And then how do I queer it and re, repurpose it with this film? The challenge was so different because at 98 minutes because of the style of the filmmaking, because of the mockumentary style, it is so fast cut. There is so much crammed into these 98 minutes that when I sat down to break it down and decide what could go, I can just tell you right now, I think this is the hardest. First of all, it's the pre-show I'm the most frustrated with, the parody play I'm the most frustrated with because what did I do? I kept way too much because I could not decide how to kill the babies of this movie because there's so many moments that are incredible. So that I specifically remember. And, and much like you, Terry, I have to say that watching it repeatedly, I never got tired of it. I fell in love with it deeper and deeper and deeper, and then would see different performance choices. And, and all, all, all of a sudden I'd be like, oh my God, Kirsten Dunst, so great. So, you know, of course, Allison Janney, of course, Ellen Barkin, But I have to tell you, I went through a moment where watching Denise Richards and and what a revelation Denise Richards is, because I think in many ways we don't think of her as a great comedic performer. But like you say, that the anorexia, the visit to the hospital, I mean, the dance with the Jesus doll. Jesus,
2: when she takes (laughs) Jesus off and walks him out like she's Jesus carrying that crucifix off the stage, but with a smile, but also looks like she wants to kind of like hook up with Jesus. Yeah, That whole, because I love that whole genre. I think there's some community that talks about that of like, I want to like hook up with Jesus music. Like I want you inside me, Jesus hold me close. (laughs) Like all those songs that kind of have that like, is Jesus my boyfriend? Yeah. Like I think Jesus inside me all the time, like all of those (laughs) songs. And she just That number, I, oh, I was crying, crying. And this was one of the first movies when the lockdown first happened in March of 2020. This was probably, I think, the first or second movie I watched, because that's how comforting it was to me to just be like, I just want to watch something that's comforting. And one of my roommates realized had not seen it. And I I thought that was a sacrilege. So I was like, we're going to rectify this right now. We have all this time. First movie up.
1: For many professionally biased reasons, I, of course, think Denise Richards is a cult revelation always. But yeah, she's exceptional. Well, you're, in this film. You're, you're friends with her. Full disclosure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm the first to name drop on this podcast. If I know someone, I'll say it. But let it be known that Michael actually has worked with
1: Denise and is buddies with Denise. You're probably overstating it. We, we've worked together a few times and I do love her. But yes, what I was going to say is you hit a point, Terry, where your roommate hadn't seen this. But this is a movie that the three of us Obsessed over. I mean, I was texting Peaches earlier today. How in college I probably watched this so many times. And the same thing with my cousin Chrissy, she loves this movie. I'll text her sometimes, and all I have to do is like Alabama, A L A. And she's like, Oh my god,
2: a mare, I can
1: exactly the thing about this movie is it follows that cult film trajectory that those of us who saw it loved it, and it's still not widely seen. This was unavailable for a long time. I think it follows a very similar trajectory to Josie and the Pussycats in a very different way that came a couple of years later, because I think that initial audience who was like hip to it was hip to it, but it's still finding its place.
2: I bought the DVD right away. That was the thing, <laughs> right. and that's the thing that saved me Cause I could pop it in anytime and I still have that like first DVD. So I would make sure I'd have like watch parties for it. Um, I think you're right because it got lost. I remember like finally on Hulu at some point or whatever, finally on now it's on like HBO Max. So I know there's gonna be a whole slew of people looking back at it right now again, but I, I think part of it might just yeah. be the darkness and the meanness and 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 the R word
0: and, and the, the R word and the anorexia and obviously we talk a lot on the podcast about um, contextualizing some of these problematic things and kind of looking at the time that they came out. I mean, sadly, I mean, as a child of the eighties, now this was later, this was, this was probably late enough to know better. i mean, quite frankly, but I mean, the R word in the eighties was, I mean, no one even questioned it. It was just it was something still
2: coming out in the early O's with, you know, um, the black eyed peas, like let's get it started. Yes, that was one of the main lyrics. Right. And that was still, that was still going to come out in like in that same era too. So it was in the zeitgeist. It was used, a lot it was very much in pop culture still through the early o's it's very cringy now
0: we do highlight a lot of movies that have some cringe moments in many ways i think it might have been that kind of comedy that was because of who was in the movie because of the way the movie was made it is surprising that it didn't hit this bigger stride but i also go oh maybe it was too good for its own good you know like there are those movies that are like so good. They don't appeal to the public. Actually, that's like every movie we do on the show. You know, they, right. they, most of them don't right away yeah. find the audience. So maybe that's part of it.
2: And just the subversiveness. Also, watching this again, I really had blocked the Asian parents adoption storyline.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: I just like kind of a very obsessed with that. Just thinking about a lot of kids I know of as adults now talking about that were Asian kids that were adopted by white parents. But to see this reversal in this movie and seeing like them trying to um, get it, you know, merchant of culture i found very fascinating in this watch around and i had literally had not really thought too deeply about that before but this really gave me some pause to think about class and like access to america and what this all kind of means and how this this really Dives to a deeper conversation.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because here we're talking about the problematic aspects of the film, which when we're looking at subversive movies, there are going to be subversive elements, many of which, you know, we're not going to forgive, but we have to acknowledge. And this is one of those where it's it's certainly not my place to, you know, give it a pass, but it is interesting for the reason that you're saying that it does this flip that forces us to examine. And I'm really, really into that because even though there's an operative stereotype being utilized here, she's kind of the fool in the whole thing.
2: One hundred percent. She is kind of an awful child and (laughs) just like, I'm here to teach you how to be American parents, you know, and just like and they seem to be on the ride for it. But I love the, the daughter, the Asian daughter, who's like. You all are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> this is awful. I'm not on board with this. It's like, she's like forced to go along with it. But really, I think really is is an interesting take on that. And just, I think it's a really, a lot more skewering of like religious culture and American culture as well too, that I really, really love.
0: Sometimes those moments in a movie like this, and, and John Waters does this so well. It ha- has done it so well for so long. They're presenting awful, horrible things, horrible people, you know, making fun of things that maybe you shouldn't make fun of. But there are these moments where the filmmaker is kind of leaning out from behind the camera and kind of winking at you and going like, I- I'm one of you and I understand. And I think especially that whole scenario, because it is so ludicrous, it's, it's one of those places where the filmmakers are saying like, we know, we we get it. And uh, the, the Asian daughter, the Asian American daughter is, of course, the us, you know, you have a friend who struggled with an eating disorder. There's a difference. There's a reason she's okay with this movie and maybe not other movies, you know, intention and tone and, you know, the overall skewering and who gets skewered in this film is what makes some of this comedy, I think delicious or, or the reason we enjoy it. We've all seen movies with the same kind of jokes, the same kind of comedy where we're like, ugh that just doesn't feel right.
2: Where you feel dirty. Yeah. 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 You don't feel dirty after this. Mm-mm. I also was like one of those kids who I since I was like 16, my brother was always like, where's your boyfriend? What's ever going-? I was like, no, when I'm 44, I'm going to adopt age appropriate children to hang out with my friend's kids. That was literally like my auntie Mame <laughs> storyline, like for yeah. my life, you know, yeah. I was like, yeah. I shall have this child later. It'll be fine. I will adopt them. And so I don't know. I just my eyes really popped at that because I have a really great friend who's adopted a couple of children. But she talks about how adoption and America is so rooted. And most of it's through Christian organizations. And it's like that savior complex that is kind of inherently pushed through that. And there's a lot of kids that get lost in the system that are gay or going through a a questioning or anything like that, that are get lost in the adoption system Mm -hmm. in America. So that really was in my mind again too, thinking like I always wanted to like take in all these like children that really do need it versus these kids that like, I'm like that kid was probably didn't need to go anywhere. Like that girl anyway, like it was going to be fine. <laughs> and, and I
1: think we've been all speaking to this as we're talking about the, these various elements, but I'm wondering for all of the darkness in the movie and all of the subversive material in the movie is part of why the movie works that threat of earnestness, you know, Amber, Atkins is an earnest, good person. Some of the people around her, the Brittany Murphy character, the Amy Adams. Amy Adams is like sexually hyper, but she's a good person. You know, like everybody throughout the movie, the the you know who the baddies are from the yeah. time that the movie starts. And you can look at the bad behavior and it's never couched. It's like the adopted daughter is treating her Asian parents terribly. Gladys Lehman is a monster.
2: They're dripping with hypocrisy. Yeah,
1: the theme of family and
0: chosen family, even when the circumstances don't look idealistic right like you know the, the way they deal with class and living in a trailer and you know the the relationship between um you know Allison Janney's character and Ellen Barkin's character like we connect with that because so many of us don't come from Norman Rockwell American ideal fantasy land and so I, I think with a movie like this you connect with this idea of what is a good life what is being a good person. And you, you relate to the idea of hypocrisy, you know, from the Denise Richards character and the, uh, you know, I mean, I played the Kirstie Alley character in the, in the, yes. in the stage show, which I was really, you know, happy to be Gladys. Um, and I loved, you know, trying to do her, her accent. Um, that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on down for some coffee and beers. You know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever it was. Jinx Monsoon was my dialect coach on the set. She loved to correct correct me because um, Jinx loves accents. And Jinx was the Ellen Barkin character, and Pandora was the Allison Janney character. Benda lacrim was Denise Richards. It was like it was a fabulous.
2: That's a stacked
0: cast. It was fabulous, <laughs> which is why it, the the stage show went on for two fucking hours. It should never <laughs> have been, it, it should never <laughs> have been that long. Too much of a good thing, right? But yeah, it was it was that thing where the monsters in this movie are the, it, the, the people we, that we know are monsters and that we we deal with on a regular basis. The hypocrites, you know, the money obsessed. The underlying theme here is it doesn't matter if it's about pageants or, you know, school or being living in a trailer you know, park or whatever. The good people are fun to root for. We're really rooting for them. They're sweet. We like them.
1: So, Terry, in your intro, I mentioned that you have traveled the world in theatrical performances. And here, Peaches is just talking about reinterpreting Drop Dead Gorgeous for the stage. So if you, as a stage performer, had the opportunity to take one character and reinterpret them for yourself to play, who would it be?
2: Oh, my gosh. That is... Oh, what a dream. I think, um, honestly, I think it might go to Shannon Nelson as Tess Winehouse, the dog girl. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I I did not expect you to say that. (laughs) I don't know. I know. I mean, obviously, like, I love everyone in this movie, but her performance is so weird. And I love playing the weirdest person in the show. And that (laughs) part, she is just like, she's an after, it feels like an afterthought, but dear God, she's like very similar to like horse school girls. I feel like she's got that same kind of vibe of just like, she loves an animal more than she loves a human. She does not know how to communicate with people. The fact that she talks about the skin from her butt on her belly. She gets some fun (laughs) little lines that I was like, oh yeah, she just comes in with just like this non sequitur moments that I'm just like, oh, okay, okay. Like, and just her um, her fervor for the dance numbers. She breaks her crotch jumping on that ladder, you know, needs some <laughs> ice. Like, she's got some fun little stuff that I think would be uh, very fun to amp up, as it were. And I also love, obviously, I love Brittany Murphy. Thinking back to that part, too, and how her brother Peter... He's the gay one, and he's the one who got out of that fucking town.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yes,
2: and that he's the hero, honestly, because she's just like he already did it. He's out. He made it out, and he's like living his dreams. And that's the one who makes it out of the town, out of all these people. Very timely to look back on that and that 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 satisfying moment where she screams
0: "gay," you know, in the era of "don't say gay." That that I remember seeing the movie for the first time. We could do an idol worship, and probably we should on Brittany Murphy. There's yes. something so magical about her performances. There's something so... I don't know. It's just, uh, we're all drawn to her for a reason. And this movie is chock full of those kind of performances where people, they don't feel competitive. They have their moment on screen or their character and it goes on and on and on. Like by the end of the, you get to Nora Dunn and Mo
2: Gaffney, like out of nowhere. Right. Just drunk at the Hojo yes. the Howard Johnson moment. Oh, of like
1: I wanted to talk about this because let's talk about the finale of this movie is Beauty Queen's Roman candle vomiting. (laughs) Just
2: disgusting. Just (laughs) vomit. Four days, just John Waters, just all the filth, you know, like inspired moment. And the fact that like, you know, I forgot how excited that Amber Atkins was to go stay at the Hojo overnight, you know, (laughs) Hojo airport overnight. And the fact that the first thing they tell them is, by the way, it's just going to be eight hours. We're not spending overnight budget cuts. Okay. (laughs) And drinks. (laughs) Just crushing her dreams. Like as soon as she gets there at any turn they can, like having a freaking, you know, a disastrous buffet of fried clams. Just,
0: ooh. All the seafood. It's the gift that keeps giving. And everyone who has, because some of these people who are so memorable, we're talking like minutes on screen, but they take those moments and they make them so great and so memorable. Even Adam West, who in many ways Because of the TV show he's famous for, you know, it is a symbolic representation of camp, you know, and a fabulous kind of camp, you know, I would venture to say this is one of those like kind of perfect movies like the zeitgeist you look at all of these people I'd love to know more about their relationships because I mean. As much as I love Kirstie Alley on screen, I look at her now and I'm like, "What is going on?" And were you always this nuts, you know? And and you certainly get the sense that these other women, Ellen Barkin and Alice and Jenny, like they just be cool to hang out with, like you know. But yeah, you don't get that sense from Kirstie Alley. But my sense yeah. with Kirstie Alley, just you know, as someone who likes pop culture and has kind of followed her career a little bit, is that I think she kind of
1: changed. That's my sense is that she got weirder and weirder. <laughs> You know, over time. You just reminded me of something that I think you both will appreciate. It's a quick story. When I first moved to LA, I was invited to a birthday party from Will Keenan, and who uh, was Tromeo and Tromeo wow. and Juliet. He, yep. he went on to be like this digital CEO and he had a bunch of clients in, in a, a bigger A-list space. And he invited me and I was like, oh, I'm going to be the black sheep here because I'm the kid from the punk rock movies that he did as opposed to. And he had this party at the Roosevelt Hotel. I can't believe I'm just remembering this. Allison and Janney is there by the ah. pool, hanging out with like her friend. And I I got a chance to talk to her. She was really lovely. She actually invited me and my friend at the time to go to the standard disco dancing with them. But I was like committed to this party. I was like, it's my one Hollywood regret. I should have gone. You're crazy. She is so
2: fun. She's a very lovely lady. Believe me, I think about it all the time. Shame. Shame. But
1: I was standing next to her and this gay kid, uh, and I knew he was gay because he was with me. So I'm not prescribing. But like, he was like, just, could you say it for me? Could you say it for me? And she's like, oh, absolutely most smartest (laughs) (laughs) and I was just like oh my god I I can't believe I just remembered this on the air
2: oh and she says that like I think even affectionately she's like Emmy award winning you know for her role in like West Wing no one Bothers her about that, but it's all of us little queirdo weirdos (laughs) coming up to her being like most smartest, eh? And like that's all we can talk about with her. And I definitely talked with her when I ran into her, went to like a thing at SAG where she was doing, you know, career talk. I think it was when um the ice skating one, ice skating one where she plays the crazy mom. I I thank you. I was like, she's so fantastic, but talking with her after that, and she's a lovely lady, she's like a theater broad, she loves all that kind of stuff too, and she will talk with you about all that goodness. You should have gone dancing with her, Michael. I know. I know. Oh, uh, devastated for real. So
1: you you see this movie relatively early in its run. Yeah, still quoting it via text and now on podcasts. How has your relationship with this movie changed over the years, if at all?
2: I think with every watch, I noticed something different. And this time it was no different. Um, and watching it again to chat with you guys about it seeing the like John Doe judge Matt Malloy's character freaking out over these girls had a whole new light this time just in light of like post me too right? yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. watching that storyline it's timeless Is the scary thing it's like there's always some kids in some small town that are you know caught between circumstances feeling like you can't leave a place and feeling like this might be the only way out and it's not a great way out and also looking at the opportunities as they highlighted between how the guys get out of that town via like sports or scholarships or have all these other opportunities And this is the one thing the girls get. So it's like, wow, how much has that changed? What are the opportunities like? So that just really hit me this this go around. It's still funny as hell to me. I still love these performances. They just get more near and dear to my heart, like visiting old friends to go see them. I just started taking American Sign Languages last year and to watch Sarah Stewart as Janelle Betts torture American Sign Language <laughs> <laughs> was even more beautiful knowing what she's saying because most of it was gibberish. She got a few words here and there, but most of it was absolutely made up. <laughs> That's
0: amazing. I'm not going to ask you the question I would have normally because we've you've touched on so many great moments. Sometimes I like to say, what's your favorite scene or what's your favorite moment? But I, I feel like we've covered so many. But I will say that you just brought up something interesting in terms of the perspective of, of then versus now. And it's more just a question And I don't know the answer to it, but is there still a pageant world? I guess I feel like maybe it's outdated or out of vogue. And if they did a, you know, I was just thinking like, what could a modern drop dead gorgeous be? And I was like, oh God, they could do it for influencers. I was thinking they could do it for oh influencers. Right. I was thinking drag. I would love to see someone truly skewer some of these Queens, you know, really go in and show how ridiculous they are. Yes, I am a bitter old queen who paved the way for these bitches. And, you know, I would love to see. It's someone. kind of
2: a, a parody of itself, though, right now. I feel kind like of. watching Drag Race, it's already kind of doing that. <laughs> right, you know, yeah, like, yeah. like every week, They that's like the kind of the the deal, right? You have these older queens and just different styles of queens. Like, oh, she's just a bedroom queen versus, you know, like there's right. like versus me in the trenches and the amount of, you know, drag queens that have been around for a long time that refuse to ever, they get so mad when people ask them, Have you ever applied? It's like, No, like, so not everybody wants right. that way out or that. That's a different thing. The uh, mainstreaming of drag is, it's, it's, cool but strange.
1: I think that the beauty pageants that have persisted over the years just for legacy reasons, I suppose, Miss Universe, Miss America, anytime we really hear about them in the news anymore, it's when some sensationally stupid gaffe happened. Like, I don't know when those pageants occur normally, but when they misannounce someone and, like, some lady loses it on stage because they called the wrong name.
2: Or that, or that such as then-and-girl who was the yeah. uh, really-and-such-as-then-girl? Yes. Yeah. and her speech? Yeah. Well, yes. And
0: and also recently, I mean, this is really sad and tragic, but there was in the media, the woman who killed herself recently who had been a pageant winner and then went on to become a newscaster. And there is this sort of like part of it that goes dark, which leads me to, to wonder, When I picture drag pageants, I actually think what's ironic about them is they started as kind of a parody of pageants in many ways, but they become
2: better than old pageants
0: (laughs) and, and people take them maybe just as seriously or more seriously. Right. So it's like, wait, this was supposed to be this fun alternative to this pretentious thing. And now the drag pageant system is so huge, so much money. Um, But I was thinking about it as we were sitting here. Of course, I'm like, let's make a new version of this. And I'm like, oh, there are these huge epic award shows that I'm kind of fascinated by, and I've never been to one, but many friends of mine who work in the industry go, and they're, they're for adult films. And that's its own other cult sort of, like, there's a whole bubble of, like, fame and, and you know, how, like, a niche. And I'm like, oh, that
1: could be really fun. The
2: Minx on HBO Max, what? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I attended an adult award show once. Oh, did you? Oh, did you? I was invited to one, and Jenna Jameson and Dave Navarro were the hosts. i oh, I love that. And it was amazing, because it was super fancy. Like, it was like the yeah. Golden Globes. Like, you were yeah. required to dress up. They had, like, bottle service at the table. Yeah. And the award show goes exactly like an award show goes, except they'll be like, all right. And the nominees for best threesome are, and then they show clips and you're sitting there with I'm sorry,
2: they're showing clips. So there you
1: are in like formal wear. And it's just like, I I remember like the woman who won best MILF, I'll never forget her as long as I live, (laughs) gave like this amazing speech about how the industry doesn't provide opportunities for women over a certain age. And like, get it, girl. Like I loved everything about this. But I was just like, this is amazing. Like everything about it. I was so glad. It was like one of these things I had just like, been invited by an associate. And I was like, fuck, yeah, I want to go.
0: No, I need to go. Let's go. The three of us will go. <laughs> OK, yeah. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will,
2: I'm super down. I am floored by this. And I am also very excited. And I love an excuse to dress up. So let's do it. Yeah, yeah there we go.
0: <laughs> the three of us are going to do a mockumentary on something. We love this <laughs> format. Uh, yes. And it's been too long. I mean, let's face it. We need another Christopher Guest movie, another drop dead gorgeous. Like we got to have one. So yeah, I I just love you Terry. I love what that you've been, you know, so supportive of our show. It means yes. the world to us and I don't know if we're allowed to say but this isn't the end of the three of us discussing Movies, there's more to come, maybe on another podcast.
2: Oh, that would be so fantastic! Wouldn't it I be wonderful? <laughs> like it could be in our future. Yes. I love this. Yeah, maybe yes. who knows? More conversations to come. Yes,
0: yes. yes. <laughs> uh, but I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. You're just wonderful.
2: Oh, you guys are a delight. Thank you for having me and keep up the great work. Y'all are fantastic. Oh, thank you, Terry. <laughs>
0: was the fabulous Terry Gamble who, uh, as Michael mentioned, earlier is a fan of our podcast which is so generous considering she has her own podcast and that's how I first became aware of Terry was because she was uh responding to things on Twitter and then I became curious and I I started to investigate who is this Terry Gamble and then I realized she's amazing she's wonderful and I I started listening to her podcast and you know we, we started tweeting as you do to each other and um She did not disappoint, I'll say that. She was such a lovely guest. And one of the things I really, really appreciated is that when you do a show like um, Drop Dead Gorgeous, and especially when you have your first guest on, I think even the audience probably expects you to go, okay, they're going to talk about this, this, and this, because these are the big moments in this cult movie. And we get to those moments, or maybe we don't, you know? But of course, the, the beer can being fused to the hand is like, you know, wow. I mean, that is incredible. Um, but Terry was really interested in some of these smaller moments that maybe don't make as many of the memes as the big ones do, you know? Um, and I love that. That's a true fan, Michael.
1: It is, but it also speaks to just how smartly and intricately this movie is put together. And um, when we reference the fact that when you did Drop Dead Gorgeous at Midnight Mass, as the parody version Death Drop Gorgeous, one of the struggles that you had was pulling the best of moments because the whole movie in many ways is a best of. And I think that Terry's draw to some of the deeper cut moments of the film more so just highlight how everything in this film is a gem. My frustration with my very own death
0: drop gorgeous pre-show was that it was too long. Um, I overrode it and the problem was that I was trying to um, preserve all of the big moments in the movie which means basically trying to reenact the entire movie which when you're doing theater and a movie is cut at the speed of light because it's a mockumentary and, and they can jump around in, into a million locations and tell a story with a, with a kind of speed that does not lend itself to theater. Let me just say that I learned a lot of lessons. And you know, one lesson I learned, Michael, is never, ever, ever ask Jinx and Pandora Box to sit and ad lib. That was the biggest mistake I ever fucking made. I talk about making the show too long. I haven't even told you about that. Like that was really where I was standing off on the side of the stage. In fact, I actually interrupted them because they were supposed to bring in a cue and those two went on for so long. I think trying to just one up each other, you know, with comedy that I had to, I had to actually go out and pull the plug. I had to get the hook on Jinx Monsoon and Pandora Box. Uh, So anyway, uh, I, I thought I'd share that
1: little tidbit of gossip. Yeah, you heard it here first, listeners. Don't stray from Peach's script. Yeah. <laughs> My precious, precious gem of
0: a script. <laughs> well, why are you laughing at that?
1: Oh, um, it's I, I was I, I was laughing in uh, sympathy. Oh, right, 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 <laughs> right. right um, of course.
0: Oh, I was about to say I would be curious to know what people who came to the show thought. No, I'm not curious. Don't tell me what you thought. I don't want to know. Thank you very much. Um, Oh, my God. One other thing, Michael, I forgot to tell you. Suppository Spelling played the Kirsten Dunst character. This show, much like the movie, was a cavalcade of drag stars because, you know, you have a huge cast. So we had Jinx Monsoon as the Ellen Barkin. We had um, Pandora Box as the Allison Janney. We had Bindle Krim as the Denise Richards suppository spelling. Myself as Kirstie Alley's suppository played uh, Kirsten Dunst. And it goes on and on and on because... You know, the, sh- the the movie's so big. Um, I wonder if there's video of this. If there is, I'll put it up on our Patreon page. I'll find video of it. Because this was so extraordinary. I said to Suppository, okay, we have to come up with a way for you to do this legendary death drop. And that's what saves the whole show. That's what that's what makes you the winner. That's what, like, you know, puts you, like, into the, the, the whole other league, you know? And a death drop, for those of you who don't know, is a drag queen dance move where you you basically kind of kick your leg back and kind of like fall backwards and land on your your ass and your back, you know? Right. Um, that's a death drop, right? So, suppository or spaz, as we call her, is like, yeah, 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 of course, yeah, okay. And so in rehearsals, she's not doing it because, you know, it's not really, you know, we run this thing over and over and over again. So when it was time to do the death drop, she'd do like, you know, a death drop, but like, you know, a modified one, you know? Right. She on stage, gets up onto like either it was a chair or an elevated something or another that was on stage and she fucking launches herself off and lands on the stage so hard. You see her head slam into the stage and bounce and the audience gasps, not in a good way, not in a like, girl, that was fierce <laughs> type way. Right. More like a, um, should we call mine one, one type way? Oh my God, this was just one of many, many flaws that happened in the show so yes if you're a patreon subscriber hold me to it just like i found i said i would i found pictures from carrie pre-shows i posted pictures from no less than four different carrie pre-shows at midnight mass on the patreon i will find some stuff from death drop gorgeous and i will share it on
1: the Patreon. yes Peaches is going to provide evidence that next to Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, her production of <laughs> Death Drop Gorgeous was one of the most <laughs> calamitous for cast members. Yeah, it really was. Uh, speaking of the challenges of bringing Drop Dead Gorgeous to the stage, our next guest is someone who has also done their own live theatrical screening event of Drop Dead Gorgeous up in Portland at the Hollywood Theater under the banner of their celebrated queer horror series. This next guest is someone that... Teaches and I both know and love, they are not just a drag superstar, they're a self-described drag clown. That's right, we're talking to Carla Rossi, AKA Anthony Hudson, all about this amazing motion picture right now.
2: At long last, love has arrived. And I thank God I'm alive.
0: You're just too good to be true
1: can't take my eyes off of you you,
2: And
0: you, and welcome back everybody oh my goodness i am so thrilled about our next guest they are a dear friend, someone I've known for many, many years. I met long time ago up in Portland, Oregon, when I was doing a showgirl screening, of all things, uh, and I've watched and followed this person's career as they've really just grown and evolved and i mean one of the things that's so interesting especially to listeners of this podcast is that this person is the creator of queer horror and if you're not familiar queer horror is the only lgbtq plus horror film screening series in the united states okay it happens at the hollywood theater which is a fabulous old movie theater up in Portland, and the shows are incredible. I'd like to think that perhaps I was maybe in some small way an inspiration, Uh, but, but, you know, I don't want to assume, because you know what they say about assuming. This person's also the co-host of the weekly queer feminist horror podcast, Gay Lords of Darkness, with writer Stacey Ponder, and their accolades go on and on. Many fellowships, many awards, many, many incredible achievements. Check out their fan fantastic website thecarlarossi.com this is the person behind the drag clown carla rossi so we get the the mastermind themselves let's hear it for anthony hudson
3: oh my god stars and garters thanks for having me i'm so excited to be here
1: we are so excited to have you here of course peaches and i both love you and you know the thing about you hosting queer horror and also talking about horror so often on your own podcast, is that it's an extra treat for us to celebrate a different kind of cult film with you. And of course, this cult film has notes of horror, but it's its own thing. And why don't we just start back at the beginning? You love Drop Dead Gorgeous. When did you find this movie? Oh my gosh. I was in high school. I read this review
3: because I was like the nerdy gay kid that would just sit there and read the newspaper first thing in the morning. I don't know what was wrong with me. We didn't really have the internet just yet. (laughs) I see this review for a film that they say it's awful. It culminates in the sequence of pageant queens just barfing everywhere and it's toilet humor and you shouldn't watch it. And obviously everything about that, you couldn't have written a better advertisement for me. So uh, my best friend immediately tracked it down when it finally got a video release. I went over, um, we sat down, we watched it and God appeared before my eyes and I was brought into the cult of Drop Dead Gorgeous. Like, Year 2000, probably. Yeah, so good.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like one of those movies where I I feel like they're those litmus test films where they're not a a slow burn. You either connect with it right away or you don't. And you can kind of almost judge a person's sort of sense of humor or their comedic wit or their level of darkness you know through some of these films I use the movie happiness sometimes the Todd Solon's film as a litmus test I haven't seen it in a while but you know I kind of am like if you if you (laughs) if you can handle happiness we could probably
3: you know get along invite the new parish priest over sit him down (laughs) for happiness yeah
0: but drop dead gorgeous is kind of like that too because unlike happiness which was presented as a transgressive film by a transgressive filmmaker. I think with Drop Dead Gorgeous, is it's actually quite surprising how dark and twisted it gets, you know? So I'm wondering, what are some of your favorite moments from this film that is chock full of incredible moments? From
3: the get-go, this movie just does not let up. I mean, you open with this Adam West opening sequence. Adam West? What is happening? Then we get I think it's kind of in the midway point. I showed this film at Queer Horror a couple of years ago and you are absolutely right. Queer Horror is 100% inspired by the original Midnight Mast by Peaches Christ. Oh. Oh, uh, Carla absolutely sees herself as a, you know, as vocally described herself as a dollar tree, Peaches <laughs> <cries>. Christ.
0: Um, <laughs> hey, please. I love what you do. And I am beyond flattered that in any way, shape or form, anything I have done has led to you doing what you're doing. Cause I love what you do. And you do it with a, a much more of a sophisticated polish. I think a more academic approach than I take. Thank you for saying that.
3: Yeah, but people aren't seeing the finger paint that is my makeup. So thank <laughs> Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Showing this at queer horror, you know, I I was like, okay, you know, the the idea with that film series is we are showing films that have a strong queer presence in front of or behind the lens. Usually I have to have an actual name, at least, of a queer person that worked on the film or a character that is in the film. With this one, I'm like, let's just accept the fact that this is a queer film because, because we love it, right? absolutely. (laughs) And then I was thinking, well, it absolutely is horror adjacent because because this is more or less a slasher film at about that halfway point, the more and more people are getting picked off. And it's a slasher film featuring killer Kirstie Alley. So I think for <laughs> me, the real, the biggest chunk of what draws me to this film, besides the fact that growing up, I loved mockumentaries so much, the Christopher Guest style, you know, inspired by Spinal Tap. And then in this, you get that, but you also get Pageant Queens. You also get a sort of semi quasi slasher film. But you get a who's who of what the greatest, some of the greatest living actresses of our time and sadly deceased actresses of our time. Yeah. I can't even begin to list off all of the names of just absolute greats and legends
1: in this film. My God. One thing that I would like to point out about this movie is it starts, as you say, like at a hundred and maintains it the whole time. But I think we all know that in movies that take a transgressive bend, it always has to be ultimately about something. You can't just have disturbing humor for the sake of disturbing humor, because for folks like us who watch these kind of movies all the time, it doesn't ring true. And I think one of the things that really is strong about Drop Dead Gorgeous is the layers of commentary here. They take on class. They take on religion. They take on red states. They take on small town thinking. And I just wondered if you could speak a little bit to unpacking all of that, being a fan of this film.
3: Michael, thank you so much for asking me this, this very important question. So what <laughs> I, I literally just finished watching this. I was like, I'm going to rewatch this right before we record. I'm going to keep it super fresh, as fresh as the shellfish is not. <laughs> watching it my mind, I I felt like the galaxy meme of the woman and or or is it I'm conflating two (laughs) memes. I felt like both the meme of the woman with the math all in front of her. And then the brain slowly glowing and getting bigger and bluer as as they attain the secrets of the universe. So I did reach Nirvana watching this film on the most recent viewing just now. As a film programmer here at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, I'm really enmeshed in showing 90s classics. And part of that is my own sense of my my love and nostalgia for watching the films that I was, you know, watching on tape as they came out as a kid in middle school and high school, but also watching them now and looking back at them historically and what they were talking about, especially with the 90s kind of being the last not only analog, but also somewhat peaceful era. I feel something happened right after this film was made. This was 1999. Something happened. And I want to, if I had to pin it down, I guess maybe circa fall 2001 that really forever shifted the American landscape and the entire socio world cultural landscape. So dropped it gorgeous watching it this time. I'm like, we are seeing the collapse of institutions. We are seeing the failing of institutional standards that Amber Atkins only wins by default because they even though she deserves it, she wins by default each time because there is tragedy after tragedy after tragedy strikes. They go to do the, the state pageant and the shellfish happens, the vomiting happens. Right. We get to the nationals. And the Sarah Rose American Teen Princess pageant headquarters has shuttered and is for lease. And it's it's essentially that opening scene of Day of the Dead when there's just newspapers and things blowing in the street. <laughs> 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 and you watch these queens just tear it apart. That You get this incitement. You get rebellion. You get this failing of American tradition and institutional norms and protocols. that These things that have held in place for so long that have created pageant culture, that have created this star-studded sort of adam west era leading into the 90s no longer works and now it's all falling apart and we're seeing all of the detritus in its wake which i feel like really this movie is very prescient in a way and yes. kind of setting up that that was beginning to happen and i think at the time we didn't even know it we were just
0: laughing at queens puking the idea of it being prophetic hadn't occurred to me but yeah i mean you're right like let's talk about it you know in the fall of 2001 tragically lady bunny ended wig stock and yes. you know that that was that was yes. the final wig stock and I, I think we can all agree that that forever changed the landscape of our of our culture and our world it was all bunny's fault <laughs> yeah
3: it usually is
0: it usually is <laughs> <laughs> truth be told um it's very surreal cuz i was actually at that wig stock in 2001 and there's photos of myself and bunny and heclina of santos on like all on the piers with the towers behind us. And wow. it was like a week later because of that that wig stock was like a week before, you know, it it happened. And getting back the the film, you know, being developed and getting your photos and it's all so surreal, but that is why, actually, I remember being at the final Wigstock, so clearly in 2001 is because of what happened, of course. But you're right, that shift really did change pop culture, it changed the way movies were made, it changed the, kind, the ways we wanted to see movies, and there was this sort of weird darkness. It's almost like after that happened, you either had to be dark, 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 and it had to be about darkness. And literally, we saw so many movies about destruction and buildings collapsing and and horror, 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 or you had to be light. And I think something like Drop Dead Gorgeous, people didn't like that kind of movie, that sort of, you know, that sort of mean comedy. Let's face it, part of the fun of Drop Dead Gorgeous is it's mean, you know? Yeah, it's deliciously mean spirited and it's really well-performed. And the comedy is quite wicked. You uh, articulated that very well. So I wanted to ask you though, Because we talked to our other guest, Terry, who also loves the film, um, a lot about her growing up in San Diego and that she played pageants and stuff. But she didn't grow up in the Midwest. And I'm wondering, where did you grow up and what was your connection to these kinds of women or girls, if any, or this culture? Or did you grow up in church? You know, what what might have connected you to this movie?
3: You know what? I... Never would have thought to put these two things together. So thank you, Doctor Lecter, for uh, (laughs) turning that high-powered perception at me. Yeah. In that 100%, so I grew up in Kaiser, Oregon, which is basic, it's better known as the tumor attached to Salem, the state capital. (laughs) And uh, we are by no means Midwest. Some people there do have a Midwestern accent. There was a whole group of German settlers that came in, including Mm. half of my ancestry. We actually have a really tiny town just right next to us called Mount Angel, where we have the Oktoberfest, and everybody (laughs) dresses up in Lederhosen. And so there's a high... German bent. There's a high um, Mormon bent. And then I also grew up with like a lot of Latinx people. Um, So it was also super religious, really Catholic or Mormon, small, small, small town, a lot of meth. And then of course we had the junior miss pageant. And I was a theater kid who lived in my auditorium. I did as good as I could in school just so I could get all the credits out of the way. So by senior year, I spent every day just in the auditorium and I had late arrival and early release, and then two classes just in the theater, which was where we were doing these productions, which is where Junior Miss was happening. And one of my best friends was running for Junior Miss. So I was able to witness her experience going into the pageant world, but in this really small town, Mormon, methy. I mean, it would make make a great like Breaking Bad kind of TV series. Yeah, (laughs) but I never realized how actually similar my upbringing was to this kind of Minnesotan fantasy, but via the Pacific Northwest. That's bonkers.
1: And it's interesting because this movie both feels like an indictment and a celebration of pageant culture all at once. And Americana. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, what do you ultimately feel is the final message of this? Maybe for Amber Atkins or for the pageant scene or girls in general? You know, I think the final message is really, it really comes through for me because, uh, Brittany
3: Murphy, mm. man. Lisa Swenson. Lisa Swenson, when she goes in and she performs that selfless act of offering her pre-approved costume to Amber Atkins and she sacrifices herself uh, because the family already has one Liza and that's better. Um, <laughs> so great. It really is about not worrying about tradition, not worrying about expectation, being able to throw that away and find your own little family and find your own happiness. Even if your family is trailer park Eddie and Patsy with Amber's mom, with Annette and Lorraine, Even if you just have your gay brother off in New York, which I love that this film includes that because I feel like in the 90s, we got little bits of gay characters popping up here and there. At the time, they kind of felt like jokes just by the sake of their inclusion. But here, watching it again, it feels really progressive and just like, oh no, these people just exist. Right. And Lisa loves her brother so much and idolizes him that she's happy even if she doesn't win. So I think Lisa being able to embrace that Amy Adams, she has such a, we'll say, slutty way of presenting herself, but there's no slut shaming in the film, for her at least. She never becomes victim to that. It's She celebrates it, and we love her for it. So I think it's fully embracing yourself as far as yourself is not a jerk, yeah. like like Becky, even though I love Becky, she's a <laughs> But <laughs> Embracing yourself and embracing the people that shape you and love you for that. There is a dear sweetness to it on the other side of all the cruelty and silliness for sure.
0: I think that that is why we love the movie so much. It's a theme that um, a lot of us who enjoy these films, I'm sure queer horror audiences, as well as Midnight Mass listeners, we come up with these themes over and over again. And part of the reason these films become cult movies is because they speak to our hearts. So if it was just bitchery and just clever meanness, I don't think it would become as beloved as it's become. I mean, Kirsten Dunst is such a great performer, such a great actor and Brittany Murphy. And I'm basically going to just repeat what you just said, but I think it's worth noting that the most successful appearing people in this film are the shittiest and the most miserable, right? So it's something that we as audiences feel good about because we're freaks, we're others. And like right. you said, the trailer park family, the idea of chosen family, the idea of being you know, a proud slut, the idea of having a gay brother at that time and being okay with it. Those are the broken families. Those are the families that you're not supposed to emulate. Well, what does this movie show us? Actually, what's way scarier is this race to keep up with the Joneses and to yeah. put on appearances and you forget all the stuff that matters. And, and all of the performers totally get it they nail it and it's delicious to watch it's a rare movie where earnestness is valued yeah i would credit drop dead gorgeous with actually going to this place that is like as a comedy person is very uncomfortable you know to go to and they make it work but i wanted to ask you something i've done this movie as a celebration Tell us about your screening of it. I'd love to know, how did you celebrate it in Portland at Queer Horror? What did you all do? Gosh, what was the summer that The Duke came out? Was that 2015? 16? Michael. Michael's our Wikipedia here. <laughs> Get a calendar, girl. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so The Duke comes out. And do you remember when, it must have been actually the next year, because when it went on Netflix and there was that like glitch or whatever in the algorithm right. so it listed the Duke as queer horror and then that <laughs> summer that Duke kind of yeah. became our queer horror yeah. icon so i was like okay so Dropped It gorgeous clearly if i'm gonna show this and it's gonna be the big the weirdo screening for that year's series because everything else is like explicitly queer if i'm gonna throw this in there as the wild card i want to get the most people to come that means we're gonna show it at pride and we're going to have our own Pride pageant. So we had Uh a bunch of different Portland queens, all representing different styles of Portland drag, which, I mean, let's be real, it's all crunchy granola and trash. (laughs) And we hear that, Jinx? (laughs) (laughs) We all, yep, she's a Portland girl, no matter where she lives. (laughs) She lives there. Now she's back here because she's trying to prove it again that she really is from here, and she is. We see her, we love her. Monsoon Manor. Monsoon Manor, just just right over on the other side of the (laughs) I-5. So... (laughs) We're doing our we're doing our pageant and then who comes out but the unexpected pageant contestant, the Duke. Ah. the Duke was the winner and was crowned Miss Clear Horror of Pride. That oh, I year. Love it. And it was it was beautiful.
1: Yeah. With that in mind, I want to ask you what I consider to be one of the impossible questions regarding this film. When you think of everyone's performance in the talent section of the pageant in the show, who gives the best talent performance in Drop Dead Gorgeous? Okay, you've seen Sophie's Choice, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm
3: going to say, honestly, as much as I love Denise's face in that Mount Rushmore, and I love Brittany laughing, trying to light her like crackpite Statue of Liberty. I'm going to say, I think it's the ball of twine and the, or the, uh, i misunderstood yeah. the assignment it's just the greatest the greatest moment it's just so hands down so silly it was good but like that's <laughs> the, they think that's the testament to this movie is how can you pick even one little moment how can you pick one actor when there's just such
0: such sights <laughs> to be shown yeah. you know no there's too many and and we, I, we actually talked about this a little earlier that was my problem creating the show is I usually go through and I break down these movies and I pull out everything that's really iconic and really great that that has to be included in a drag queen stage show version and you know I usually get like a decent list but it's certainly you know something I have to flesh out and and turn into its own story and with this movie oh my god it was like the list that just wouldn't stop because This movie is just moment after moment after moment. Also, the mockumentary style, the way it's cut, it's so quickly cut together. And so... It's one of those films that I think also lends itself to these obsessed, repeated viewings because you can literally pick up on something new with every watch. It's just dense. You know, you're watching the background actors. You're listening to the uh, the, the commentary that's over here rather than in the foreground. And it's, it's
3: just amazing. Yeah, and then I was texting my best friend who, you know, I grew up watching this with. And as I was watching it, I'm like, okay, this is the best part. No, this is the best part. But then you get these characters that just pop up out of nowhere completely unrelated to the story when you get Connie Rudrud (laughs) the St. Paul pork products or Ione Hildebrandt like Ione Hildebrandt just sitting there stamping her papers with her her big old stamper yeah I don't know why that stamper was the funniest prop ever when I was watching it just now I can't get enough
1: I'm so glad you mentioned both of those characters because that was something I wanted to ask you about we've talked about how like luminous this cast is the primary cast of this movie is just star after star, performance after performance. But part of the genius of Drop Dead Gorgeous, and this is something that both of you have spoken to in this conversation, is that it's completely the whole way throughout filled with goodness. So even these secondary characters, who we maybe don't know those actors the way we know a Denise Richards or a Kirstie Alley or a Kirsten Dunst, they sell it and that's what makes this movie great. So do you have a favorite secondary character in the film? Oh god, it's it's really
3: a, a horrible awful once again Sophie's choice as question that you're presenting me with, but I can narrow it down to two. There is definitely the currently reigning Mary Johansson who can we oh My god, so good. I mean, how many drag queens? How many drag queens have replicated that exact moment of don't cry out loud? Yeah. Nobody could ever present that number. It's like it's like finding the end of pie. It's impossible. Somewhere, somewhere between her and St. Paul pork products. Just watching that woman just shake in front of the green screen of just animal
0: slaughter. It, it, it's gorgeous. What's the name of the um the girl that gets blown up on the tractor? Oh, the Les, Tammy, <laughs> Tammy Curry. Like, I love Tammy Curry. You know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. like such a little bit part, but she plays it so effectively. It's not too overdone yeah she's the les the fact that you get to the very end and like mo gaffney shows up you know and it's like those two just running around being so ridiculous clearly being allowed to do whatever they wanted really so funny
3: mo gaffney and nora dunn as yeah drunk harpy trolls (laughs) my like Uh. what comedy gods saw this movie and (laughs) blessed it you know just wow Right. Well, and the shoulder pads, the shoulder pads, yeah, the hair. You know, Specta- I mean, no the mind. second that they show up, and Amber says, uh, "I'm, I'm, i Miss Mount Rose," and they go, "You don't look dead."
0: <laughs> and they're just cackling. <laughs> that actually is a really good question, though, uh, Anthony. Because I would love to know more about it. and Maybe you. Or Michael know, because I don't know a lot about the trivia of this film. Unlike some other movies where I've been lucky enough to meet people um involved in the making of them, like the screenwriter of Romeo and Michelle came to our show and I got to talk to her. And oh. you know, that that's another one of those weird, weird movies where you go like, How did this script? get to this place, you know? So, and so I got to hear her story, but with Drop Dead Gorgeous, you know, I would love to know like what was it because clearly the cast alone, the sheer size of the cast, the amount of talent, both new and seasoned and the level of talent, whether they were the new people on the block, Brittany Murphy, Amy Adams, you know, it's just Kirsten Dunst, like these genius performers, you know, working alongside Ellen Barkin and, uh, Kirstie Alley, who, you know, but but you know what I yeah. mean? Like she, but she's talented, you know, especially in this film. Oh, she's great on film. <laughs> exactly. How do you think that they did that? Was it the script, you know, or was it the thing where it's like this person signed on? So this person signed on because it almost feels like, oh, that they were able to just build this. Cavalcade of talent
3: Well that's the thing like like Dune Got a lot of credit this year for world Building everyone loves talking about world Building (laughs) and like what does it take to flesh Out a world and world build Can we go back to Drop Dead Gorgeous Perfecting world building in 1999 yes Right it's true so like I think you know There's Michael Patrick Jan who was doing The State and then Reno 911 And so really already invested in Creating these like intricate interwoven Stories that are just hilarious and full of really richly fleshed out characters. There's the actors. But I want to know so much more about, is it Lona or Lana Williams, who is judge number three that wrote the script? She doesn't really have a lot of screenwriting credits. She was involved with Sugar and Spice, another great bonkers, twisted 90s, cynical American teen comedy. She has a story credit on Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, more recent one. And really that's it. And like, I just want to sit down with her and I just
0: want to, pick her brain and just find her. We should find her and just let her know, like, cause we know we're filmmaker people. We know it all starts with the screenplay. I mean, not to take away from the director. One thing I love about this movie is it's one of these men who knows how to direct funny women in a very loving way. And it just, it feels very respectful. Yes, This is a, a movie where women have all the power, and he did a great job, but we know nothing can happen if she hadn't written that killer script. Exactly. So, you know, I, I would love to put her up on a pedestal, and we should all just celebrate her together.
1: Okay, some required reading then for listeners who want to delve a little deeper into this. In 2014, friend of the podcast, Louis Peitzman, wrote The Complete Oral History of Drop Dead Gorgeous, where he actually spoke to this screenwriter, uh, he did it for BuzzFeed when he still worked there, and he talked to a number of the actors as well as the director, I believe. And me, um, no, did he? Yeah, I'm in that. You did you okay. Well, the- <laughs> <laughs> god you goddamn bitch, how
3: dare you? Well, then,
1: why didn't you recommend the article?
3: Mommy and daddy are fighting. Uh, how dare you erase
1: me? No,
0: now, watch, I'll go look, and I won't be there. I, I could have sworn I was in that. <laughs> I really don't know. I'll have to look it up. They
3: removed her from the special editions. Welcome to Midnight Mass, (laughs)
0: Anthony. (laughs) If I'm not there, I will publicly apologize to Michael.
1: Okay, that never happens. (laughs) But anyway, I have to ask, you know, one of the things that we bring up with these cult films, when you see a cult film, it's a movie you carry with you. You watch it over and over in your life. It means something. It takes on a different shape than, say, whatever we see at the multiplex. From that first time that you saw Drop Dead Gorgeous to now, how has your relationship with this movie changed, if at all? You know what
3: is so weird is that I don't know that it's changed very much at all in any way, except I just have even more respect for all the women in this film. And I think a huge one was actually Denise Richards. I love Denise Richards. I screen, I mean, if anybody follows my programming, I screen Denise Richards nonstop at the Hollywood Theater. I can't stop doing it. I'm showing Tammy the T-Rex this Friday because how could you not?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, Anthony, one of the people you're speaking to right now is personal friends with Denise Richards. I
3: know, and I'll never not be jealous. (laughs) I'm going to absorb your essence, Michael. So I've always loved the Queen. I've always loved Denise Richards. One thing that as a teenager I didn't get was that I felt like she couldn't do the accent and she wasn't doing the accent with everybody else and i don't know if like how much of cultural misogyny was just conditioned into me where i'm like well she's not trying as hard watching this even more recently i only love her character more i love and i read her as this mean girl who wants to be cosmopolitan who wants to break out of mount rose and become even bigger than the mall of america and so she is suppressing right. her accent and like those moments so you get to see little glimpses of it. Like when Kirsten Dunst, when Amber comes after her backstage about the costume and they start screaming, you hear her accent come out. And I'm like, my God, Denise Richards is a brilliant, brilliant actor. And I could never love her more. So I think if anything, I've just grown with love for all of these women and for Denise,
1: my queen. Denise is unquestionably a cult icon when you think about people in this trajectory if you get one cult movie in your life that's a win but for a stretch wild things starship troopers drop dead gorgeous tammy and the t-rex i would even argue dr christmas jones in the pantheon of james bond girls valentine
0: yeah i've never seen tammy and the t-rex
1: Oh, get an animatronic T-Rex
0: for the pre-show right now. Like, <laughs> I love Wild Things. I remember sitting in the theater being like, is this really happening? Like, this yeah. is just so amazing. It's so great. And in fact, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't had a bigger cult. Yes.
1: Well, luckily, Arrow Video is doing a, a 4K restoration of Wild Things. that's coming out in Blu-ray, I believe, next month, which I did get to interview Denise for that oh. Blu-ray. So I'm I'm excited. <laughs> Yeah, peaches. <laughs> That's my mature way
0: of of responding to your dropping something on the floor over there. Yeah.
1: I'm going to I'm actually going to take that audio and every time peaches has a story about someone she knew. When peaches is like, "Well, when I was invited to this dinner party," ooh, yeah, Oh my god, god that would be amazing. Yeah, you need a sample of me that you can use against me. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. But anyway, I don't know, Anthony. What do you think? Is is there a Wild Things cult? Oh, absolutely. We did a screening just before
3: the pandemic. It must have caused it. And everybody, everybody <laughs> lost their mind. We were all in the theater, just like so uncomfortable, but just giddy. All of our twelve-year-old fantasies coming back in full force, you know, and <laughs> reinvigorated. Um, I think I even-
0: have a story. I was with my friend. Natasha in New York City, mm. Natasha Leone, and, um, <laughs> and uh, we were walking around Manhattan as you do, and she ran into a friend of hers, and she introduced me to him, and I just start talking to him like he's anybody, and we're walking and walking, he's wearing sunglasses, and you know, he's very, he's very, very nice or whatever, and clearly he and Natasha have known each other a long time, and, but he was very friendly, and we're talking, and then he walks away, and as he's walking away, I'm like, That's Matt Dillon. And it was when he was leaving. I'm like, oh, of course, Natasha's friends with Matt Dillon. You know, I wish there was more to the story other than I met him once, you know. But I do love that movie. I think it's his best movie. Oh, my God.
3: Oh, and there's a great episode of Pin 15 where I love that show, you know, set in that set in 2000 where they all sit down. They all get together and have their illicit viewing of wild things. And like, that's the wild things experience.
1: It really is.
3: The truest. And I think. What I love about film criticism and and reevaluating movies, especially decades later, oh God, the, the icy hand of the Grim Reaper is touching my shoulder. But watching these later, we get to see now 90s movies being taken seriously and having their moment yeah. and exploring yeah. and unpacking what are they about? We're talking about Drop Dead Gorgeous. And that movie was just... Like I said, when it came out, it was just written off as a movie with a bunch of pageant queens barfing, and who wants to see that?
1: I think that's a good way, as we wrap up, to reevaluate Drop Dead Gorgeous. Not that we three need to, because we've loved this movie all along, but you talked about your changing relationship with the film as you have embraced it over the years. But as is true with so many cult movies, this did not land well, for all of the reasons that you said. When it came out, we were in this cultural shift that... For all those reasons and many more, it just didn't get embraced. But it is getting rediscovered because of all of the people involved, because of celebrations like what you did with Queer Horror and what Peaches did with Midnight Mass. And so, as audiences find their way finally to Drop Dead Gorgeous, what do you want them to take away from this movie, discovering it now? I would say give up the seafood and <laughs> never. Women are perfect.
3: Women are perfect. <laughs> Let's drop misogyny and sexism from the world and celebrate how incredible these women are and how even a silly little comedy, you can still see great acting from some incredible actresses, actressing, right? Alison Janney, Ellen Barkin. Ellen Barkin deserves an Oscar just for her one tiny little role in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I've been saying this for years, but does she not also deserve an Oscar for this? That moment when Loretta says on the TV to her, I got some. And Annette like kind of just smiles and gives her the thumbs up at the TV. I actually kind of had some tears because I love their friendship. And that's powerful acting, even if it's a silly movie. So I think watch it and really look into the amount of work that these women put into it and how powerfully they did it.
0: You're right, the reason we love it and the reason it's so funny is because of how committed they are. And that line, walking that line between camp and earnestness and, and playing big characters, but also having those moments of realness, Part of why we love it so much is because other people just didn't get it. And it's ours, you know, it's ours and it's not theirs. It's our thing. It's like queer people. We were perfect from the start and everyone's just
1: now catching up. I know. Yeah. These movies are the underdogs and so are we, I think, in many ways. And that's the embracing. Anthony, last question. When will they finally build the parking lot of America to go with the mall of America. <laughs> you know,
3: hopefully Elon Musk once he figures out that tunnel and the working car and the moon, hopefully at some point he'll be able to finally devote the funds back to to where they truly belong, which is getting uh, Iris her parking spot and Gladys.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now Anthony, where can people follow you or Carla? Where should they find you? How do they find out about the upcoming queer horror or listen to your podcast? I've always said if you light
3: a bag of poop on fire i will be there um you can go to <laughs> the rossi.com it has links to all of my everything to queer horror to gaylords of darkness um, i'm on instagram and all social media as at the carla rossi and then for gaylords of darkness you can listen to us at gaylords um yeah thanks
0: so much for having me thank you for coming yeah we loved having you thanks honey
1: Welcome back listeners. That was our interview with the fabulous Carla Rossi, Anthony Hudson peaches. I really love the thoughtful approach that Anthony takes to this zany film, like really just how they unpacked the timeline of this movie coming out right around nine 11 and sort of how that affected the response, but also the content of the movie was a reflection of the broken America that was existing around that era. I never thought of that. So to approach this movie that I think of often as just ridiculous camp with that track in mind is is so inspiring and thoughtful.
0: For as much fudge packing as Carla Rossi does, then you've got unpacking from Anthony. And I think, you know, Anthony's unpacking. (laughs) (laughs) I was really that you didn't even react. But I love that now. Yeah, I just can get away with saying these things and and they don't even phase you.
1: Yeah, it's basically scar tissue at this point. Carla Rossi
0: is a fudge packer, Um, but Anthony Hudson is an unpacker of critical theory, making that connection. And I think we've seen this with other films as well, like, we know that Heathers came out in a pre-Columbine world and watching Heathers, the movie, you know, about high school students who <laughs> killing their classmates, uh, blowing up the school. In a post-Columbine world, it's a different thing. Not that I don't still love the movie and I certainly hope that we tackle that on Midnight Mass someday. People have definitely asked for it. Uh, in fact, I think it's required of us to do that. We've promised. Yeah. I think Drop Dead Gorgeous is interesting in a similar way where sort of the meanness and the darkness of this film coming out in 1999, things really did change. And this dark, dark, dark comedy kind of went out of vogue for a while.
1: And it's a shame because I think dark comedy like horror, especially during tumultuous times, socially, politically, what have you, are needed more then than ever. Like we always like this material, but if you don't have some piece of art that is using that absurd lens or dark lens or camp lens to critique the shit that's going on outside, then it's sort of like we're giving it a pass. Maybe we're the outliers in this because movies like this, as we talked about, don't historically do well till later. But I find reprieve in these movies during weird times, you know?
0: I actually think the studios and the people that finance these things have it all backwards. I think in many ways in the dark times, you know, like right now, I don't necessarily need to go see a movie about uh, a nuclear holocaust or impending World War III, because of you know the state of affairs with you know what's happening in Ukraine and also you know what what's happening with us in our own yeah. relationships with Russia and China. Um, but that being said, the anxiety I experience daily, you know, because I, I I love checking the New York Times every morning, does make me still enjoy dark content. So I may not be tuning into something that's literally speaking to what my anxiety is, but I have been finding that, you know, I, I love watching shows like Yellow Jackets and, you know, these things on TV that are dark in comedy that's dark and I find it it's cathartic. So let's put out more dark shit. We
1: need it. We need dark stuff right now. Speaking of which, have you seen X? I haven't seen it yet. I, I haven't. I was going to say, and speaking of which, if you would like to finance the movie that Peaches and I wrote.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I mean yeah we have a dark comedy horror script ready to go michael and i are, are, are out shopping it around so by the time this podcast death drops <laughs> uh, <laughs> we will have had our first zoom mixer with our pope level patreon subscribers so i'm really looking forward to that that's coming up for you and i in just a few days but by the time this podcast death drops we will already have had it and we will have uh had this mixer where we're getting to know our Patreon subscribers on a private Zoom party. So if you're listening to this and you want to come and join us for the next mixer, where we'll have a topic and we'll be having a a live conversation, then head on over to our Patreon and
1: sign up. Just be prepared with your pageant talent for us because Peaches and I will be critiquing.
0: I can't be responsible for what might come out of my mouth. So that's
1: true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I may ask you an inappropriate question. Um, but yeah, I just loved this episode. It was so much fun. It, it's such a fun movie. We really merely only scratched the surface when, when talking about uh, how much this film has to offer. So, you know, if you haven't seen it in a while or you've, you haven't seen it at all, you know, get out there and watch it.
1: Yeah. And if vomiting beauty queens are the thing for you, well then, Peaches... Well, then you just might be
0: a child of the popcorn now.
1: Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.